Good morning. I'm Steve Beggs. I'm one of the elders, and it's my privilege to read God's word for you this morning. Our passage this morning is taken from Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. I want you to kind of, uh, you've now loosened up your voices a bit by singing. Take a few minutes and talk to the person next to you and answer this question. What is your favorite movie? Now, some of you are like, I can't, I have 50. Okay, what's the, what's the movie you've seen recently that you really loved? So just take a couple of moments to, we're in a movie theater, so this should be easy work today. All right, if you, uh, if you started a conversation and get to finish it, we have a 30-minute party every Sunday after upstairs, so you can, you can keep on doing that over coffee. Um, chances are, whatever movie you mentioned, uh, you may not realize this or subconsciously, but it is a story. Very few movies, even documentaries, which are um, accounts of facts or historical events, are usually a part of a story. And that's why we love movies, is in a sense they draw us in. Books and some of my favorite movies are are movies that were books and were made into movies and the ones that I felt like accurately represented the book. Those are the ones I love. They're stories that pull us in. Now some stories are told and they pull us in just for amusement. So if any of you listed The Hangover Part 3 as your favorite movie, uh, nothing against you if that's your favorite movie, but that is for sheer amusement, which is, uh, someone reminded me recently, is from uh, two Latin words, A means without, and muse, which means thinking. So amusement is non-thinking activity, and certainly that movie qualifies as one of that. And so there are movies like that, and they pull us into another world for a little while, and we can escape without thinking, but we come back to to, uh, life as we know it afterwards. The lights come on and so forth. Other movies are stories, maybe historical accounts, things that actually happened. These days, there's many movies that are based on true stories, and we find those riveting because we watch them and think, wow, I can't believe this happened or this person responded this way to such and such events. 
Now, the best movies, the most powerful ones are stories that, in a sense, pull us in or books that pull us into another world where we can begin to live in, in another reality, but then somehow that that reality begins to speak to us, to our mind and our heart, and we begin to think differently and feel differently than we did before, potentially with the, with the outcome of us acting as different people as we leave that film. Those are the best stories. Now, the power of a story depends really on two things, on who's telling it, and why they're telling the story. In the case of many of the movies that are out here for amusement, perhaps people are telling that there are people motivated by profit. And so they know people like to pay money to be distracted. And so they're, they're a person who wants to make more money and their goal is actually to make money in the making of the film. And that's the, who they are and their per reason for doing it. There are others who are, like I said, so captured. You know, recently, last Christmas, Angelina Jolie was so captured by the story of that man uh, in prison, uh, prisoner of war in the movie Unbroken. And so it was, so here's someone who's a filmmaker who's been in film who wants to create this story to give attention to this hero, to this person. The best stories are the ones that are told by people who have um, a, a good motive for us or something that they want to see and that the goal and that their reason for making the film is to evoke emotions and maybe change behaviors or thought patterns of seeing things the way they are. What's interesting to me is that one of the reasons I think that we love stories is because we ourselves, though we don't use this language all the time, although we've talked about this in church, is that we ourselves are stories that are unfolding. And so much of the activity that we engage in in life is to try to understand our story and who we are. Where did this start? Where is this going? How is this going to unfold or end? Where's the trajectory of my life going? And as you're, if you're later on in that story, today we're celebrating my dad's 70th birthday. He's here with us today. So. <clears throat> Now, he may, have, he may have another 70 years, but he's probably sort of looking back more. And we do, we do that. We talk about the past a lot more as he's looking back on his story and how it's unfolded. Maybe others of us are looking and say, well, you know, I've got many years behind me, but I've got many more ahead, hopefully, and where is this going? And one of the things that I love to find out about the scriptures, the book that we come and gather around every week that many of the songs we sing are based off of and that Steve read for you this morning, is, describes the fact that our lives are indeed a story. But it's a story that's much bigger than ourselves. It's actually the story of God and people that he created. And as this story unfolds, as we know him more, we know ourselves more. As we know the story more, we start to go, ah, this starts to explain my life why I think the way I think, why I desire the things I do, why uh, you know, I struggle with the things I struggle with. This story, and to be honest, that's the reason I'm a Christian. Not because it answers all my questions, but it, this view presented to us in Scripture, put on display for us in the life of Jesus, best explains the world as I can tell, and it starts to explain my life, and therefore I'm within it. Now, what's interesting is we come to the scriptures in the New Testament where we are given four biographies of the life of Jesus. He actually told stories. And the stories Jesus told were not just for amusement. They were not just sort of to entertain, although that was a common sort of uh, thing to do in those days. It was not just, the stories of Jesus are not just, as some people think, like Aesop's fables. You know, I, I always, my one son loves the story of the crow and the, and the, uh, the cheese. And if you've never, I'll tell you to you after, if you really want to know what that story is about. But that, that, that is a little story, a little moral lesson about, about pride or about flattery or something. And so it's a pithy lesson and it has to do in itself contained. The stories of Jesus are not even that, though those were good stories. The stories of Jesus are powerful stories because of who was telling them and why he was telling them. They were told by the one who loved the audience who was listening. 
Jesus in every aspect of his life exuded, and we, so that's why we sing about the love of God shown to us in the life of Jesus, the way he taught, and the way he loved, and the way he interacted with people. He had a love that was so expansive, crossed social boundaries and class systems and all of this stuff, and he was the one telling the story, and so he loved his listeners. And secondly, he was telling them the story because he wanted more for them, which is a beautiful, that means, that means these are the greatest stories ever told because they are told by someone who loves us and who wants more for us and who doesn't want more. The reason Jesus uh, and the way he communicated these are called parables. You may have heard them, you may have read them, you may have read them, not understood them, you may not know anything about them. But the parables of Jesus, and as we're, we're actually going to take the whole summer to go through a different parable every week. The parables of Jesus are so interesting because they are meant to do a few things at multiple levels. One is help us know God more. That as he is telling the story, there was always the listeners going, what is he saying about God? Because Jesus was always talking about God, who he called his father. Secondly, what's he saying about me? The listeners were always trying to figure out, he's telling this story in response to a conversation we just had. I'm somewhere in this story. Where am I? Who am I? Jesus would always present these stories in a sense, in a way to invite the listeners to find themselves somewhere in the story. And then thirdly, they were stories about himself, even though he never said they were stories about himself. He was, as he was teaching, helping us know him more. And so as we go through the parables of Jesus this summer, it is an invitation for all of us to actually know God more, to find ourselves in relation to this God, to understand Jesus more, who is his son, who was the visible display of who God is to us And to know that, first of all, even if you say, well, I'm not a person of faith, but to know that someone is telling this story who loves you and who wants more for you. And so that is a beautiful thing to say, okay, well, I want to be loved and I want more for myself. Steve read for us this morning one of the stories. We're calling it the Pharisee and the tax man. The story begins in the second verse. It says of the story, two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, Judy, if we can put that on the screen there, uh, Luke 18. Second verse, two men went up to the temple. This is like, you know, you think, okay, here's a story happening. The reason he was telling the story, why was he telling this? It was about the pecking order of righteousness. The word righteousness appears at the beginning. In other words, how do I know I'm okay? How do I know I'm a good person? Now, a, a, a religious person might say, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in that. Well, someone else say, well, I don't need religion or a holy book to tell me whether I'm a good person. Uh, you know, I follow the golden rule, which happens to be from a holy book. But, uh, and, and I'm trying to be a good person and do the, the best I can. But the fact is, it is a question every one of us wants to know. How do I know I'm a good person? How do I know I'm okay? And Jesus tells this story to unearth this, what is the pecking order of righteousness, of good living, of purity, of being a good person? And he sets it up with two men who go to the temple to pray. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, maybe you know if you've never heard this before, let me explain a little bit. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, the Pharisees were a group of people that were, uh, if we could say, the most devout religious people in the Jewish culture. They were a people who felt that it was their responsibility to preserve the faith, Um, And in the Jewish uh, worldview, they had 10 commandments, as many of you may have heard, but they had 639 or something. Malcolm, what's the number? Uh, 628. 628, um, (laughs) Commands that all these laws that they were supposed to follow that would allow them to keep the 10, because the 10 were hard to keep. And so how do you know? I mean, murder wasn't that hard to keep. You had to be, uh, you know, kind of specific about that. But the Sabbath, how do you know you're not supposed to work on, on, on the holy day? Well, don't do this. What's work? And so they thought, well, let's not leave it up to imagination. Let's create all these laws. And they were a group of the few people who the rest of the world looked at and said, well, you're the few that are actually able to keep all of these laws. 
They, they knew the scriptures. They were, they were um, legal experts in the application of law, which was scripture to them. And they were scribes. They were people who wrote about it. They were people who taught about it. And so these were the experts in God, if you will. And so Jesus says, one of these people coming up to the temple to pray, naturally, is one of these Pharisees. The other was a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jewish people, but who were employed by Rome to collect the tax. And the Romans, if you know in the history, exacted heavy taxes from the countries and peoples and lands that they occupied. And so this was not, uh, if you think our tax system is heavy, there was uh, not a lot of benefits coming around uh, like healthcare and education. It was you're not going to get killed. Um, and so it's a little bit like taking your lunch money. Uh, as, and some of you, maybe that's hitting close to home when you grew up. But that's essentially what it was. Rome were bullies. And they exacted heavy taxes and they employed Jewish people to do it. And so the Jews who collected this were turncoats. They were traitors. They were people who were taking money from their own people, exacting heavy taxes. And there were all kinds of taxes that Rome instituted. Not only that, they were greedy. They thought, well, fine, if we're going to do this occupational hazard, I'm going to get mine too. And so they would take a little bit extra or a lot, in some cases we find from some of the stories of tax collectors who ended up in, this, in these biographies of Jesus, a lot in some cases. So they were thieves, they were greedy, they were essentially extortionists, and they were turncoat traders. And Jesus says, these two people are approaching God. And he's setting up this thing. And so his listeners, maybe they had come, become accustomed to, okay, nothing's predictable with Jesus, so we're going to withhold judgment. But the average person might go, well, f- first of all, one of them naturally is supposed to be there. The other one, what's he even doing coming to the presence of God? And even for some, it would have evoked some emotions. And certainly if there were other Pharisees in the audience listening, they would have even been offended that this tax collector was even coming to the temple to pray. And if he was, we knew there were separate areas where the holy religious kind of people and the people who were the outsiders and who, who thought they didn't belong or other people told them they didn't belong, they had to pray. So these, these two men were not going to be in the same place. And so he's setting up a little bit of a, what's the pecking order of righteousness? In other words, how is God going to respond to these two people coming to the temple to pray? What's stunning is, no matter how predictable they thought this was, the end of the passage, look at verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Two men are coming up to the temple to pray. The religious guy who belongs there, who's done everything right, and the tax collector who is the scourge of humanity, who is a mess, who is a sinner. And he went away justified. And that word justified, in other words, meant God said to him, you're good, you're clean. You can go home a free man. How, what, how, what took place between these two men coming to the temple to pray and at the end, the one who everybody thought was already justified before God, leaving empty-handed and the other one saying, I'm right, I'm pure, I'm clean before God. What happened? Well, if we look at the account that was read for us, very different, a lot of differences between these. It's interesting, and, and Luke, is, as he's writing the words of Jesus, is playing these contrasts between these two men. The contrast would have been obvious just by their names, like I just said to you, the kind of people they were. But then how they pray begins to reveal an entirely different set of contrasts. It says the Pharisee stood by himself. He uses the same word. It says the Pharisee stood by himself and the tax collector stood at a distance. This idea stood by himself is actually almost a play on words. It's an interesting because in the Greek, they use two different words for the same English translation. The connotation is that the Pharisee stood by himself, in other words, on his own, by his own strength. 
And it says the tax collector stood at a distance. In other words, he was this idea of saying, I'm not even sure I belong here. They were both standing, but in a sense, the tax collector was kneeling and the Pharisee was like this. This is the picture of these two men. It goes on to say in the prayer, the Pharisee starts his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. In a sense, he begins to push other people down and he lists a bunch of people, adulterers, robbers, and then it's like he's looking around. It's, it's like Gideon always trying to get him to close his eyes when he's praying, but now he, he does this where he's kind of like praying and eating his food while we're, while we're praying for him. So the guy, it's like he's praying with his eyes open. He's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he looks around, oh, yeah, 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 like this guy. He sees this, and he says even this tax collector, in other words, a guy just like this, he's just like a robber, adulterer. In the Pharisee's mind, this guy belonged on the list of most wanted in the, in the Jewish culture. And so he's looking around going, I thank you that I'm not like all these people. Oh, yeah, and like that guy. He's looking around, pushing himself up in the, in the same breath, pushing other people down. It says the tax collector couldn't even look up. He's not even thinking who else is in the room. He is only aware of two people, God and himself. And it says he cannot even look up. The Pharisee begins by comparing himself to other people. The tax collector has only one comparison. There's only two people in the room. It's him and God. And in the presence of God, he doesn't look very big in his own eyes. The Pharisee sees many other people in the room in his mind's eye. And of course, on the pecking order of righteousness, okay, God is here, I'm here, but then there's all these other people down here, so I'm doing okay. He compares himself to others. The the tax collector compared himself only to God. It's so interesting. Both of them use the word sinner in their prayer. One of them's calling other people sinners. The other one's calling himself a sinner. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you like I'm not like these other sinners. The tax collector says, God, have mercy on me. There's only one sinner in this room. It's me. They both use religious language. One of them to cast judgment on other people. The other one, an honest assessment of himself. One justified himself. In other words, he comes to God. It's as if he's saying, God, I'd like you to see my track record. First of all, I'm not like all these other people who do all these bad things. Secondly, look at all the things I do. I fast, I pray, I tithe, means I I give a tenth of what I make. And so, God, here's my track record. So I've got an A, right? He wasn't asking any questions. He was justified, just wanted to make sure God knew what was on his list. The other one is coming and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. What is mercy? Mercy is undeserved favor. He recognized he was undeserved of it, and he was asking for favor from God. Two very different postures in their approaches to God. One declared himself righteous. The other one, the only reason he was there, because he knew there's only one person who can tell me I'm good, and it's not me. As uncomfortable as he felt in that space, you know, shying away, not willing to look up, he was there because he knew the only way I know I'm okay is if he tells me I am. I cannot tell myself this. Versus the Pharisee who had the long list of here's all the reasons I already know I'm fine. This was the difference between these two men, the two men who went up to the temple to pray, the two men who otherwise, by the, by the view of the world, would say, well, we know which one's good and which one's not. And Jesus turns the whole thing around and said, look what comes out of their mouths, and you can tell actually one is in real trouble and the other one's starting to look a lot better than when he came in. Here's the thing. The Pharisee was looking down. 
In other words, he was looking down at other people. His whole realm of comparison was other people, and there were lots of people he could find in his life who were worse than him. He was looking down, looking this way, and in a sense looking down his nose at all these other people, and so as he listed them and he could see them, it made himself look good. The tax collector was looking in and looking up. He was looking in. He wasn't even paying any attention to who was even in the room. He was looking in in the sense he knew his own heart. He knew stuff was not right in here. And even though it says he couldn't look up, in a sense, he was absolutely looking up because he knew there was only two people in the room. Me, and I know what's in here, and him. He was only aware of up and in. The Pharisee was not paying any attention to either. He was looking down, around, at who else was with him. Why did they come to the temple to pray? The Pharisee clearly came to the temple to pray as a part of his religious duties and on, while he was doing it just to say, just so you know, God, and just so I can tell myself, I'm good, right? The tax collector came what? Simple prayer. Oh, Lord, have mercy. They were both looking to be justified. They were both looking to be declared good, pure, clean, right, standing in the right path. And at the end, Jesus says, they were both looking for that. The one who thought he had it left empty-handed. The one who was pretty sure he'd never get it left justified. This is the difference between these two men. And what's so interesting about this story, as Jesus is telling it, he's obviously telling them something about God. But at the very end of the story, he says to them, truly I tell you, right? Verse 14, what's the language he uses there? I tell you, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, not the other man, went home justified. The story started with, well, what's God going to say to these two men who come up to the temple to pray? They both pray, what's God going to say? Jesus says it at the end. He wasn't asking a question, what would God do? He said, I tell you, this one is justified, this one is not. In a sense, Jesus was putting himself as the place of the judge of the human heart. What would God say to these two men? I will tell you, I tell you, this one is justified, this one is empty-handed. Jesus was not only telling them about God, he was telling them about himself, and he was telling them about them as they approach him. What kind of person is declared right in the eyes of God? What is the pecking order of righteousness? And as I said to you, whether you're a person of faith or not, how do you know you're okay? Is it your list of good deeds? Is it the bell curve of humanity? God up there or Mother Teresa, you, your neighbor, and that lowlife who committed a crime on the weekend? Is that the pecking order of who's good and who's right? Or is it something entirely different, which is really what Jesus was saying? Whatever you got on your sheet, Jesus was tearing it up and saying, these two men came, one with a list of all the reasons why he was good, the other one who couldn't even look God in the eye because he knew he was not. And Jesus said, this one, I tell you, went away. This is very interesting because we live in a culture where pop psychology is all about the power of positive thinking. It is, a, it is a culture where we declare ourselves righteous. Now, it's not a religious culture. We're, we're called a post-Christian or a post-religious nation. Many of us grew up in religious backgrounds, but many people, 
And maybe some of you, or maybe as you have come to this church over the few years, you come from religious background, but not really sure you want any part of it. And yet we're still all trying to figure out, well, how do we know we're okay? And pop psychology in our culture says, look, you're okay. No, you're not perfect. You make mistakes. But look at yourself. Look inside. Think positively. Try to do better. Sure, try to be better tomorrow than you were today, but you're a good person. Don't think so poorly of yourself. It is a form of, it is the other side of religious, of a religious holier-than-thou person. A religious holier-than-thou person, which none of us like, <laughs> says, look, these are all the reasons why, according to religion. But we can equally go to the other side and say, forget religion. I'm a good person. I do all these things. It is still a form of self justification of declaring ourselves righteous. And what pop psychology does in our hearts, if we believe it, is it either makes us very proud people because we have to use the bell curve of humanity to justify ourselves. We have to say, well, there's some people a little bit better than me, but I'm not like those people. So I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm okay, right? I'm in, that, I'm in the middle of that bell curve, right? That's kind of how I live my whole academic life, <laughs> going, okay, I'm not there, but I'm not there. I'm okay. <laughs> I survived, mom and dad, okay? <clears throat> but there's many of us who said, regardless if you forget the religious standards, whatever holy book you used to subscribe to, I just got to know I'm okay and I'm going to judge myself on the bell curve of humanity. And so that will lead us either to be proud people who look down at others because we have to, because if there's nobody below us, we're not okay. So we have to be able to find and tisk tisk at other people or read the paper and think, what's wrong with these idiots or the person who cut us off in the left lane? You know, why are they driving 80 in the left lane? There has to be people below us if we're going to be okay. Inevitably, if we believe in this power of self-justification of saying, I'm an okay person, I have to have a bell curve and I have to be in the middle, which means inevitably I'm going to look down on other people. Or I'm going to be a wreck because I'm constantly going to be aware of how I fall short. And I'm going to realize at times in my life, there is nobody below me. I'm the worst. And even if I'm not sure I believe it, other people are saying that to me. The people I love, the people that are close to me, my parents or whatever, and the way that they interact with me, my school teachers or whoever it was had an influence in my life is essentially telling me, you're not good enough. And so self pop, pop culture that says, hey, look inside, will either drive us to be proud people who look down on others or will drive us to self-loathe and be a wreck. And Jesus says there's an entirely different way for people who come and want to know, how do I know I'm okay? He says, I am the one who declares. It's not from in you. It's not a voice inside you. Truly, I tell you, this one went away justified. This one went away with a right standing before God. Now, you might say, well, it, well it, who's this one? How do you know? What is it? Is it acting like a worm because this guy was beating his breast and he wouldn't look to heaven? I want you to think about this for a moment. You might say, is that what Jesus is asking us to do? Like, you know, my, my friend who doesn't come to church, but he says, oh, VJ's church, he's an Italian guy. He says, that's all mea culpa, mea culpa. I'm, I'm bad, my fault, my fault. That's why I don't go to church. Is, it that, is that what's going on in this story? I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is telling a story of these two nameless guys, but imagine you were somebody who was a tax collector. Imagine you were somebody who was on the list of sinners in that culture, sitting in the crowd. Would you be feeling bad about yourself through this story, or would you be feeling like you've never felt before? If you were listening to what Jesus was saying, and as he's naming this tax collector, you're sitting there, in the crowd, maybe at the back, maybe knowing you don't totally belong, how would you be feeling? Would you be feeling like a worm or would you be feeling like for the first time in your life somebody saw into your heart and loved you? Wouldn't you be feeling, oh, thank God, I don't have to be educated, I don't have to be beautiful, I don't have to be successful, I don't have to be perfect because God knows I'm not to be justified. 
I don't have to be any of those things that that man says he is or that culture says he is or everyone says I'm not. It would be the best news you had ever heard if you were like that tax collector sitting in the room. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, and probably all of them were saying, and me too, and me too, and me too, went away justified. Essentially, this is what he was saying, if I can give it to you this way, and maybe this will help you remember. Look in and look up, and you'll never look down. See, Jesus had two reasons for telling this. The very beginning of the parable says this, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, they had their own list, and therefore looked down on other people, he told this story. In other words, look in, know your heart. Know that no matter how good you appear or what other people think of you, there is nothing inside yourself that can save you. You are your own worst enemy. As someone once said, no, you're mad at people who lied to you, nobody's lied to you more than you. You're mad at people who have made decisions and it's affected your life in a bad way. No one's made more bad decisions that affected your life negatively than you. You are your own problem. Look in and realize, I cannot justify myself. And look up. Say, but there is one who can. There is one who sees through my heart. There is only one who can pronounce me clean, right, and it's not me, it's Jesus. It's the one who sees through all past human surface motives, emotions, actions. It's the one who says, if you come having full hands, you don't need anything from me. But if you come empty-handed asking for mercy, you will receive it. That's what he was asking for. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Look in, look up, and if you do that, you will never look down. You'll never look at other people on that bell curve of humanity anymore because you realize there's no such thing as a bell curve of humanity. There's only two people in the room. It's God and me. And if it's before God, I'm empty-handed. He's full, so I'm like this. And, and, and Jesus was saying, look, if you're confident in your own righteousness and therefore look down on other people, you have to realize that as you come empty-handed and realize I cannot justify myself, ultimately it will change the way you treat other people. There will be no more bell curve of humanity. You will not be looking down your nose at other people because now it doesn't matter who you're comparing yourself to. You know there's only one way to be right. It's if he says I am. And if he says I am, if I am of utmost importance to the one of utmost importance, if Jesus gave his life for me, if the Father God sent his Son to die for me, then he must really love me. And it doesn't matter what the rest of humanity says or does. Look in, look up, and you'll never look down. You know, part of Jesus' mercy to us and to the people that listened to him was he told stories. He didn't name the people. They had titles or their roles. But it is a mercy, right? Every time someone tells a story like this, it gives us the dignity of sitting back a little bit and listening and going, where am I in that story? Jesus didn't call people out in that moment. He was telling a story and it was a sense, it was a merciful story to both people who were like the Pharisee and very self-justified and people who were like the tax collector who felt horrible about themselves. It was a mercy to both of them because he was saying to them, listen, stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop making a list of all your rights and wrongs. Stop keeping a record of other people's wrongs. Stop 
comparing yourself, looking this way, looking down. Look in and realize there is nothing within you that can save you and look up and realize there's the only one who can and he offers mercy to you. It was, a, it was merciful even to Pharisees who would have been sitting in the audience. He was not condemning them. He was warning them about a way of thinking and he was inviting them to change their mind. It is what a great story does. It pulls us in and says, think with this for a minute. Think with me for a minute. Look at these two men who went away clean, free. Don't you want to be free? Change your mind. Change the way you're thinking about yourself, about God, about others. It was a merciful story to everyone who is listening. And so it is to us today. Even as I was studying and reading through this passage this week, just praying about this and saying, God, like, what's going on with this video camera? It's like a spy cam or something. I was praying about it, saying, God, like, if this... If this is true, it means that any kind of anger or judgmental attitude or frustration I have with other people means that I have somehow become unhinged from your love and your grace. I've stopped looking in and looking up and I'm starting to look around at other people. If there's judgmental attitudes or anger or frustration or indignance or hurt in my life because of what someone else has done for me, ultimately what? I am looking down. I'm angry. If there's unforgiveness in my life, it means I'm not willing to let you off the hook. And you are below the curve on me. And I have the power to forgive you or not, and I choose not to, because you are going to remain down there. If there's that in my life, God is saying to me, you don't get this. You're not seeing inside properly. You're not seeing me for who I am. You're not seeing that I'm the kind of God that says to the sinner, turn around and I'll forgive you. No matter how much, the more empty-handed you come, the more full you will leave with. It is a merciful story, friends, to us. And so where are you in that moment, in this place? Maybe some of you even came in here today feeling so weighed down by guilt and shame. Maybe you were kind of shuffling into the presence of God, in a sense, standing at a distance. Do you see this is the invitation of Christ to say to you, come closer, come closer. Lift up your head, not because you need to be proud and you have good things in your life. Lift up your head because I'm the one who can tell you you're clean. My son has died for you. Hey, where's the cross today? The cross is usually over there. <laughs> My son has died for you. Lift up your head, not because your list, I don't care what's on your list. It'll never be enough, so just put it away. No matter what other people have pronounced over you or said over you that you're not good enough, that you'll never make it, that you can't be, that you failed again, and maybe you said to yourself, how come I keep failing? As you come shuffling in, listen to the voice of Jesus that tells the story. Lift up your head and look at me. Yes, you're well aware of what's in here. And so ask for mercy, and I will give it to you. And perhaps others of us are aware of this bell curve that operates in our lives. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. Or perhaps there's someone, maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a family member, maybe a colleague, maybe a boss, that we are harboring unforgiveness towards and we are holding them down, in a sense, because we feel justified. We are better than them. We would have never done what they did. How could they treat me like that? And Jesus is saying mercifully, come, let go, stop looking down. Look in and see your heart. Look up and see me as the one who forgives graciously. What's so interesting, and these two men come to the temple to pray. The Pharisee asked for nothing, and he left empty-handed. You get that? 
He wasn't asking God for anything. He was just telling God where he was at in his moral list. And he left empty handed. The tax collector came and said, this is the 11th hour. I have nothing. Have mercy. And he left with full hands. So friends, let's not be people who come into the presence of God and ask for nothing. Let's be people who say, I have nothing, but you have everything and you have determined to give it to me because you are loving and merciful and you have made a way for me through the death of your son to come to you that all my sins and my junk and my blemishes are washed over and made clean because of Jesus. And so now I don't need to bring anything to you, but you have everything for me and I can receive from you. And so two questions for you. What guilt, shame, or fear am I hanging on to? And this is on the back of your bulletin as well. If there's that in your life, boldly ask. Do not come here and ask for nothing. Ask Jesus for mercy. And if you are angry or bitter or judgmental towards someone, humbly ask Jesus to cleanse you and free you. That man went away free that day. And friends, essentially unforgiveness, bitterness, frustration in our lives, who who is held captive by those things? We are. And so when we say, Jesus, help me let go, cleanse me and free me, and you deal with them, I'm just going to look in and look up. I'm not going to look down anymore. Don't come away empty-handed this morning. Ask him. This is one of those Sundays, every four Sundays, we celebrate communion together. And I don't know what your tradition is with that. Some of you come from, it's called the Eucharist, the host, or whatever. Let me explain. It, it, It is essentially the table of the elements the bread and the wine that symbolize the death of Jesus for us. And what it is, friends, it is a table for those to come, approach, and eat. You are not the host of this meal of forgiveness. You do not bring anything to the dinner party, just yourself and a hungry stomach. And God says, I, have, I need nothing from you. I love who you are. I love how I've made you. But I need nothing from you. This is for you. And so the table, the elements as we come are a symbol of saying, Jesus, I come empty-handed, but you have a full plate for me. You have mercy and forgiveness and grace and cleansing, and I don't need to bring anything to the table except my desire to be free, to be cleansed, to be justified in your sight. I want to stop justifying myself. I want to get off this bell curve of humanity, and I just want to say, okay, what do you have for me? The only two people in this room is me and you. Now, the beautiful thing is we come to that together. Isn't that the beauty of the church? That no one of us has to stand up and say, I'm a sinner. That's what we're all saying. That's why we come to church. It's the biggest lie that the church is full of people who have it together. No, the church is full of people who go, I don't have it together. That's why I'm here. And so we don't have to stand up by ourselves and come in, in, in our tradition here. We come and receive that. You're coming with a whole community of people who says, oh, yes, we have nothing, but he has everything. We come empty-handed, we leave full. I just want to bless you this morning with a a repetitive behavior in your life of emptying your hands, of shame and guilt or self-justification coming to him empty-handed and saying, fill me up again, remind me of your love for me, cleanse me, that this will be a well-worn pattern of your life of emptying your hands and having him fill it up again. In the name of the Father and Son and the Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated just for a couple of announcements.